welcome to Musitations, Sound Healing and Sound Wisdom for a World in Need. On Musitations, we explore all things musical, meditative, and creative for healing, transformation, and awakening the relationship between nature, culture, and the soul. I'm Michael Branty Maria, and I'm your host and guide on this journey on the edge of a new millennium. I bring my 30-plus years of experience as an integrative wellness guide, best-selling author, meditation, yoga, mindfulness teacher, and a four-time Grammy-nominated musician. Join me now on this adventure of awakening the soul. Welcome to Musitations. And I'm your host, Dr. Michael DiMaria, where we explore music, meditation, creativity, and wisdom for a world in need. As you've known from a lot of our other shows, that our main focus and curiosity and interest is how we are music, that we are vibrations interacting with an amazing field, and how we need to wake up in this period of time to be more resonant with ourselves, each other, the natural world. We're at a time of crisis culturally and naturally. It seems like so many things are completely unwinding and fragmented. I had the wonderful opportunity recently to read an extraordinary book and first listen to it as an audiobook, and I was extraordinarily touched by this man's voice and by his, the presence that came through his reading of this remarkable book. And his name is Philip Shepard. And on Musitation, sometimes we do interviews, and I like to think of them as soul-versations, um, a conversation between two souls, which I think of as a soul sphere of energy, and where we are exploring what is unfolding between and within us. And so for me, in all my work, the idea of a soul-versation is that we are inhabiting this moment being present to what is and tracking that and and sharing that as authentically as we can and and this is a time to find a solversation first and foremost with our own bodies our own hearts our own feeling but also with nature and each other so i'm thrilled I, i've just been so looking forward to this and i'm so glad he has a busy schedule and i want to tell you a little bit about him and then we will jump in so philip shepherd is recognized an international authority on embodiment. He's developed the Embodied Present Process, T-E-P-P, -P, a unique set of practices for reuniting the anxious, restless pace of the intelligence in the head with the deep, present, and connected intelligence of the body. His first book, New Self, New World, Recovering Our Senses in the 21st Century, drew on a lifetime of research and experience and was widely acclaimed for its originality. Philip's insights have been shaped by his adventures also, and this particularly interested me as a teenager, where he cycled alone, get this, through Europe, the Middle East, India, and Japan, through his deep commitment to and studies of bodywork, um, where he studied no theater, and also has played lead roles on stages in London, New York, Chicago, Toronto, and his burning desire for freedom that has illuminated his entire life. He teaches his TEP workshops and trainings around the world, and, we are, and he lives now with his wife in a quiet car-free community in Toronto, in a home they designed and built. And without further ado, it's, it's my 
deep pleasure and joy to welcome you, Philip, to Musitations. Welcome. Uh, it is such a joy to be here with you, Michael. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I have to say, you know, I, we were talking just before we got on, and I want to invite our listeners and ourselves to really tune into um, this present moment and how it feels to be in our body and, and what's present. Something that stayed with me from the very beginning was this love of theater. We both have a love of theater. We, we, you're much more accomplished and experienced actor than I am, but I've done some acting and, of course, you know, my love of music, all things creative, which I know speaks to you. That the way no theater, I remember you, the word when you, when you read the writings of, and I can't remember his name, you can remind us of, uh, you, you said they were incendiary, that, that the way it, I always say, you know, that it's like when the soul catches fire and, and we find what it is we're here to do. And, and, it, and it called to you, it just called to you to, as a, as a young man, to first go to see a no performance, I believe you said in Montreal, it was? It was, yeah. And I, I don't know the name of it, but it really touched me because, um, you know, it's, it was a story about a mother who lost a son and went back there on the anniversary of his death and, and just was dealing with that grief and how you were so touched by that and that you even said that it continues to stay with you to this day. And, and that really, really touched me because you know, we live in a culture that um, is death phobic and grief illiterate. You know, that we, we don't honor, we don't honor these passings. And, and I think sometimes we have a sense of, of wholeness, and again, your book, Radical Wholeness, as like we're striving for some idea of wholeness, as a, opposed to feeling all that is present to experience the natural wholeness that is, and it's only by being present to the wholeness of what is in this moment. Um, love, hate, grief, pain, all the humanity, all of our human uh, humanness. So I guess I, I don't, I'm just called that, that has stayed with me. I've been wanting to ask you about, you know, if there was anything in particular about that particular performance of no, and that it had a mother and the death of her son that at the center of it. And and here you were as a boy, a man, son, all these different things, heading off. And I remember you saying, not even sure if you'd survive. And um, I, I, I know that feeling when I went off to do my first vision quest with a Blackfoot elder, and I truly did not know if I would come back going without food or water. So, so I know it's pretty deep, but I got that feeling you were willing and you write from this depth and I want to start right there. So I'm, I'm open to anything you want to share about that. And it's less a question than an inquiry and an opening. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's such a, uh, an appropriate place to start. I feel because something was seeded in my soul. Um, initially by, you know, I, I, what I read, what you referred to were, you know, a short treatise by Zami Motokio, yes, yes. Uh, the founder of No Theater, um, just on the art of the No. And, you know, it's three pages long or something in translation. And, and it was like a seismic shock through my soul because he was evoking 
the the spirit, the innermost spirit of creativity and art and presence uh, within these simple words. And you know, I I was seventeen at the time and heard about a no play in Montreal and hopped on a bus and and went and saw it and. Um, two two really striking things happened. One is I dissolved in tears mm. at the beauty and the restraint and the waves of grief that mm. shimmered from the stage. This mother who she she kept she was mad with the loss of her son. And she would see him appear and then he would disappear. And this wave of loss would go through her. And this happened repeatedly. And the second thing that that really struck me is that I <laughs> I had no idea how this 600-year-old play in a foreign language with instruments playing that I'd never heard in my life, how it had gutted me, in effect. It had, it had spoken so deeply to me, and, and I didn't know how that had happened. Um, so when I was 18, it was like, do I go to university? Um, or... Do I, you know, I didn't have any money as an 18-year-old. Do I go to England and buy a bike and head off for Japan, which is what I did. And that journey was a journey of undoing at a subtle level, undoing of the things I thought necessary, undoing of cultural constraints, undoing of, of a barrier around the self that you know every you know i'd head off in the morning on my bike no idea what was over the next (laughs) let alone where i would be sleeping that night because i slept outside wherever i went and um you know the day would go on and dusk would begin to fall and i'd need a place to sleep and every night there was a sense of being guided palpably guided Mm. to a place where I could safely spend the night. And I think because my life depended on it, that sensitivity appeared. And so it was a communion, Mm. such a felt embodied communion with place Mm. at this moment. And I mean, the whole way I slept, I slept without incident and, you know, I was in India falling asleep and there was a village in the distance. I can hear their, their drumming and their singing together at night and just all these memories. But no one knew I was there. I was, I was held in this um, embrace mm. of the night. Mm. And when I got to Japan, just to follow up on that. Please, please. That one, you know, that thing of, of, you know, I, I I was an actor. I was working with a theater company downtown, um, the youngest person in it by 10 years or something. And I, you know, I'd seen 
Sir John Gilgood and Sir Ralph Richardson in a play in London by this time. But nothing prepared me for no theater. And I could, I could parse Western theater and appreciate the technique. Nah, none of that for wow. no. Wow. And the reason which I discovered in Japan, the Japanese arts revere hara as their source. Now, hara is a Japanese word that means belly, but if you translate it into English as belly, you do it a great disservice because, you know, the English word belly um, is something that's prone to weight gain and maybe a little embarrassment or vanity um, and digestive problems and whatever. That's what the belly is to us. In the Japanese culture, hara, it's the source of your profoundest understanding. It's where you land in yourself and feel your deepest truth. And in a Japanese no play, every arm that raises is, is raising from that place. And when a head turns and sees, it is seeing from that place. And the effect is one of shimmering, luminous harmony. Mm. I, had never, I had never witnessed anyone see from that place, mm. move an arm from that place. And so it was like this, this kind of um, holographic reflection of the universe itself happening through these... Mm gestures through the mm. action play. Mm. And so there I was as a teenager being introduced to this other intelligence mm. that this this culture had gathered around that was not even on the radar of of our culture. Yes. Yes. Um mm. I was feeling into that in this moment and Thank you for that. I've been so wanting to ask a bit about that journey and 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 that call. Um, I have to ask you this really specific question, and then I want to move into Hara and this energy and and the pelvic bowl. But I have to ask: Did you have a compass, maps? I mean, I love when you said I knew, but I got a bike when I got to England. And I kept going in the same direction. I'd eventually end up in Japan, and the sense of the. Um, you know, there's a few lines in uh, Pablo Neruda's poem called Poetry, and he talks about the moment poetry arrived, and he said, you know, I wrote the first bare line, pure wisdom, pure foolishness, and then the wings opened, or I, then it, then the world opened, I found forgotten wings, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but this idea of the pure wisdom and pure foolishness, right, but I, I'm in genuinely curious i mean did you kind of um i actually had a dream last night where i was in the ocean and i was it was dark and i was loving it and i was floating in this beautiful dark ocean and the clouds covered the stars and i said oh i totally lost orientation of where the directions were and i was like because i've been a wilderness guide and and like to have a compass with me wherever i go and it's like i i don't know where the shore is and 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 that's that edge of panic and curiosity. So it makes me, I was in a, it made me think about your journey, but I, I was just curious, compass, maps, um, I'm sure you also talk to people, but I just have to ask you that. 
Um, no compass, but, you know, I had a map and when I got to the border, the limit of that map, I'd buy another map. I love it. And that was the extent of my plan. Wow. You know, it, it, um, it, it was, it was, it was day by day mm. in this journey of discovery and newness and drinking in place and people and culture and you know on a bicycle you're 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 wide open to the world you're just exposed you pass someone you say hi it's it's not like you know being in a vehicle and so i was saturated by these other ways of understanding what it means to be human and you know riding as much on faith as on my own wits God bless you. God bless you. I love it. And to me, it, it was, a, it's clearly it was initiatory, you know, initiated you and, and so many different ways as no theater was. Um, I, if I could follow up on that. Please, just, please. Because, I mean, we, we are um, without initiation rights. And I have a very specific understanding of what an initiation rite is. And I'd love to share it with you. Please, please. In part to see how it accords with yours. Um, we grow up in a specific culture and every facet of our culture is part of a story that tells us what it means to be human. Mm. You know, to be human in our culture means you have a you have a mobile phone and you ride in vehicles and you live in houses or apartments it, but it's all it's all part like in its detail in its tacit instructions you know you sit down to eat and there's your placemat and your knife and fork and your chair and and this is your space and so you can relax because you're boundary is defined and if if sally beside you needs the salt on the other side of you she's not allowed to reach through your space and get this salt no no, no. she has to say philip would you please pass me the salt and then i'll convey it safely through my space and she can pick it up on the other side of that so so our boundaries and our sense of self are are shaped by our culture and it's just a story and it's a story of arbitrary nature in many respects. And we mistake the story for reality mm. because we don't know any other way. And the story is necessary as a child because you're held within its, its orientation and you can feel your place in the world. But at a certain point, you need to discover that reality cannot be contained in a story. It will leak out of any narrative you try to construct. And that the initiation then is sort of an unmediated encounter with nature, with the reality, with the mystery. And then you come back to the story, recognizing it as a story, recognizing its value and its limitations at the same time. Mm. Well, that's beautiful. And, and we're in agreement. And, and to me, it is. Um, you know, human beings are, are beings that create stories of 
about reality and then forget their stories. <laughs> it's like, and that we, we are amazing. Uh, and that there, they are like memes, these, these, like a, a gene, you know, there are these certain, certain, yeah, orientating points, certain maps, you know, of reality, and yet it never is the territory. And yeah. oh my goodness, I it, it was thirty one when I I had my encounter, and I I've had I had previous encounters. I had what I call a soul coast at eighteen myself. It was a little different, and another time to talk about that. But I I was always very in touch with the mystery as a child, but I had no words for. It. I think we all are, of course, yeah. until we're educated out of it, and that when we or i sometimes i think of when you talk of reality you know being at large right and that's why i love the the subtitle i didn't get to to mention i'm going to put my glasses on again um so the book again is radical wholeness embodied oops goodness okay i had to radical, close the window my neighbors uh, no worries um, <laughs> radical wholeness the embodied present and the ordinary grace of being and in fact my my center my my, also my record company is uh, Antos, Antos, a center for being, and Antos Music, Antos World Press. That 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 is a that is a, a defining element of of my work. But Antos for me again, the Greek for being and of ontology, but it's also an acronym. And I didn't think about this. I, I just remembered when I decided on the name. I was going, I wonder if that's an acronym. And I just heard intuitively a voice. Yes ongoing numinous tracking of soul <laughs> like, right? it's like i know you'll get that a lot of people don't understand what i'm talking about but oh totally oh my goodness because it is it's it's ongoing and so initiate initiation in fact native people that i've met and worked with the understanding was tribal culture living such harsh and difficult lives knew its best chance of survival is the new blood of the young people through vision quests or other kinds of rites of passage or soul initiations would be given the next step of cultural evolution, right? Because they would bring in the new songs and the new dances. And, and so it was a way of evolving the story. So it didn't stay stuck in it and it, and it moved with the unfolding nature of reality it makes me think of, I, I don't know if you know much of um, Robert Persig's work that Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance and love that book. Yeah. yes. And, and he talks so much about pure yeah. dynamic quality. There's a knife edge at the moment of the now where this pure dynamic quality is constantly unfolding. And as soon as it comes into space time, it starts to move into static quality and that moves into form, which is essential has to happen. But the real knife edge and what we tend to miss is how to stay in touch with that. And I found your book such a beautiful approach and practice of doing just that, staying close to that dynamic quality, which is wholeness itself. You know, I, I feel that very deeply in, in the way you talk about it. You have some beautiful ways of, of sharing. Um, there's so many different directions we could go, but I, I just, probably because I want to make sure I pronounce it right, but I loved Sesalame. Um, so I would love this idea of dynamic quality and and I think part of the story and I want to let the readers know what you know part of what I understand is and Philip's life mission has been understanding that story 
in some ways the story behind the story that that has been informing us in unconscious or subconscious ways that stay so unquestioned that that keeps us apart from that and we're both critics of a, a head-centric culture top down and i love this term and i'll let you introduce it to everyone and 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 why it just rang so true with the way I live and experience reality and what I find missing and try to help people connect to. So, so wherever you would like to go with that, I'd love to hear. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I learned of it from a, a book by Catherine Lynn Geertz called culture and the senses. And she'd heard about this, this culture, the Anglo Ewe culture in Africa that had a very different experience of what their senses were than our five senses. And, and you think, well, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're all humans. We're all born with the same apparatus. How can that be? Um, well, culture shapes the way we see, the way we hear, what we see. And um, we have our five senses. And... There's something they all have in common. And it goes back to, the, to what makes us comfortable when we sit down at a meal and here's our placemat and our chair and our space. All of our senses uphold a tacit boundary around the self. So they all follow the model of a stimulus from the outside world, crosses the boundary of the self, arrives on a receptor, and that... that is sent to the brain for interpretation. So, so they all involve a crossing of this threshold where the self ends and the world begins. And that's why balance is not one of our senses. And it's odd because we talk about, you know, having a sense of balance and we have a sense organ devoted to balance but it's excluded because, because it dissolves any boundary. You know, gravity, our sense of balance, it's a living, moving relationship and there's no separation. There's no, you know, um, stimulus arriving, crossing a boundary. It's, we've been held in, in the embrace of gravity since conception. It's, it's, it feels us as much as we feel it. And so, and so you look at Sesalalame, um, the anglo Ewe culture doesn't actually have a word for the senses, but, but Sesalalame is as close as they come to that. And Sesalalame literally translates as feel, feel at flesh inside. Mm. And they feel all of their senses. They feel the world through the flesh of the body. So, you know, they have a word that means listening with the ear, but it's recognized that that's not true listening. Mm. It's when you, when you feel the sounds of the world um, within the body, from the body, when you feel the sights of the world from within the body that you are truly hearing and seeing. And it was a relief to me to discover that because... It's how I experience the world. You know, when I, the subtitle of radical wholeness uh, has the phrase, the embodied present. And 
the umbrella term for my work is the embodied present process. And what I'm trying to point to with those words is that the present lives within you. It's not that the present is out there and I'm in here. Every aspect of the present is a river running through you and can be felt there and you can see from there and feel from there and hear from there. And we, we really want to put the world out there and keep me safe in here. And it's, it's, a, it's a corrupting metaphor. It mm. does a lot of damage. Mm. So beautiful. So beautiful. Wow. And again, I, I just feel that. Feel, feel it flesh inside. And, and what takes your work, I think, beyond a, a lot of, you know, I've been a mindfulness, mindfulness and meditation teacher for 38 years and way before it was popular. But I, I have always felt that the you know, it, it's, it's a poor translation and a poor word because it's, it's actually, you know, uh, the, the character, uh, the kanji is actually heart, mind, now. But even that misses the body because even in the East, you know, there can be that missing of the body. And in my first book, Ever Flowing On, on being and becoming oneself, a lot of people didn't get that. That oneself I was referring to was, was very similar. I said, you know, adding from the the mind of the East and the heart of the West is the, the soul, the embodied soul of the indigenous people of this world. <clears throat> and and I, you just gave such beautiful articulation in, in two of your other words. And I want to say, I love your wordsmithing just like, because I'm the same way. And, and so holo sapiens, you know, the sense of wholeness and then also body world that we would be better understood as body world, that it is a constant interchange. And, and it is a, a non-dual experience, but it's also a very different than what we usually hear in a lot of non-dual circles, which tends to be disembodied, <laughs> right? And so, so that sense of, of and that, that I'm taking from the intro from Jeff Brown said that he felt that you know, some non-dual traditions, you know, or at least the people who may present it. But I, I guess I would just love to, to move into you being able to share about body world and holo sapiens, being that sense of wholeness and how we can, because it is scary to move there for people because, because we're conditioned to be comfortable. And, and I always like to tell people, you know, I never remember Jesus saying, blessed are the comfortable, <laughs> you know, that, that is, right? Um, that, and we've confused even in our culture that, you know, happiness with comfort, I think also. And so we tend to medicate, you know, if anybody is the least bit uncomfortable, we medicate them. Um, so anyway, those are, so there are some things I'd love for your, your thoughts on. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think there is in our culture, uh, an error in some uh, non-dualist thinking because they, they start from the premise that there is no such thing as in independence. And patently independence is a fantasy. I, you, know, you can't find a single example of it in the universe. And yet our culture has gathered around it. Joseph, Joseph Campbell you know, wrote about the tyrant and the hero um, as he explored world myth. And he, and, and he characterized the tyrant 
as the man of self-achieved independence. And, you know, that phrase, self-achieved independence, is the American dream. It's what we're taught to aspire to, to, you know, if you work hard enough, you can make it and you can, you know, buy that mansion on the hill with the perimeter fence and the security guards and people to do your laundry and your dishes and clean up after you and organize your schedules. And, 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 and it's this, you know, this quality of independence that, that moves us further and further out of relationship. And so, so we are gathered around the, the fantasy of the tyrant of independence and strive to feel independent and to organize ourselves independent of the world. And that's all really necessary, basic information to understand there's no in, uh, independence. But then we say, so there can be no individuality. And I think, I think the specificity of our particular experience is, is washed away as a result of that. Mm. I'm looking at trees outside my window and they are individual trees and none of them is independent of each other or of the moon, you know, or the stars. It's, it's a continuum, but, I, you know, I'm drawn to, for an, we, we need a new frame of reference. We need a new way of understanding ourselves in the world that doesn't rely on this, this notion of independence and yet allows for individuality. And where my mind goes to is, is the image of a standing wave. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yes. You can, I mean, you, sometimes they occur in rivers and it's, it's just this wave that's there, but you can also, I mean, it's hard by hand, but you can get a machine wiggling a rope at a certain frequency and suddenly you see these, these waves and it's, it's, it's as though the, the, the rope loops up and back down into this still point and then up and back down into another still point and and those waves at the right frequency just stand there so they're called standing waves and that that node where the one wave ends and the next begins is a point of stillness that is held by the energy flowing through it it is made possible by the energy of the rope and Similarly, we are each a stillness, a node of stillness that is held by the energy of the world coursing through us. And just as if, you know, you turn off the machine and the nodes all disappear, you know, you, you baffle or thwart that energy and the stillness disappears and our humanity is compromised as we contract within ourselves. But but individuality, nature loves it. Nature thrives on diversity and specificity without ever needing to say anything is independent of anything else. And so, you know, the, the, the trap with mindfulness that you mentioned is that we've, we've attached to this idea that the mind and the brain are synonymous 
And so we talk about the mind and we, we, we're talking about the thinker in the head. And intelligence courses through yes. the body. The, you know, they've established that the body processes a billion times more information than we can be consciously aware of. So there's our conscious awareness and it is a billionth of what our bodies are processing and knowing. And that, you know, to me, that intelligence, the whole of our intelligence is our mind. It's, it's, it, you can't, but as soon as you think of it as something contained in the head and then you go to be mindful, you fall into the trap of sitting in the head and noticing the breath, sitting in the head and noticing the, the tree rather than feeling it through the body. Um, and, you know, the, we, we get it, you know, we talk about body, mind, and spirit, and mind, body, and they're all impoverished ways of, of trying to frame our experience in the world around us. There's this, you know, well-known saying, this, this desire to be whole in body, mind, and spirit. And in, in a sense, you know, in its essence, what it's saying is there are these three aspects to the self. And if you can allow each of them to flourish and come into harmony with the others, you will be whole. And it's just nonsense because it's saying, it's saying that the world doesn't really matter. What matters is the way you organize yourself when all there is is relationship. It's the only thing that exists is relationship. If something has no relationship, it doesn't exist. Yes. So all there is is relationships. So, you know, to be whole in mind, body, spirit, and relationship, I could, I could go with that. But no, no, then we lose control. We can't control relationship. And we want to have control. We want to set this boundary and have control. And that's, you know, the, the deep, deep premise of our culture. So when I suggested body world as a way of describing our personal experience it's what i am experiencing now is the body world is me here in this moment in this world and that my experience is never any less than an experience of the body world mm. and and you know uh, and well you do know because you've read radical wholeness <laughs> i I really believe that our culture systematically desensitizes us to wholeness so that at a certain point we have difficulty speaking from our wholeness or listening from our wholeness. We, we, we have difficulty feeling the wholeness of the self. We have difficulty feeling the present as a whole. We, we notice aspects of it, but to feel it as a whole, we struggle. You know, we need to go on retreat for seven days to achieve that. And the irony is, all there is, is wholeness. If you're not feeling the present in its wholeness, you're not feeling the present in its reality. Mm. And if you're not feeling the present, the reality of it, where are you? How do you locate yourself? How do you come into relationship um, with your life? Um, so that, you know, that, 
holosapience is, is a word I coined to refer to the sense that gives us the ability to feel wholeness. And until we recover holosapience, until we're able to attune to wholeness, we will be at odds with our reality and we will be doing damage both to it and ourselves. So true, so true and so beautifully put. And, and I love the word, I've been using it a lot and, and I, I, I realized somewhere in, in that, as you said, our culture makes us whole blind, but we come into the world with that sense. It's just not cultivated. Yeah. And, you know, my children. black, yes, exactly, children have it. And, yeah. and you know, this sense of uh, my, my Blackfoot teacher who passed away a few years ago, who got my first vision quest, he, he shared, you know, one of the greetings in Blackfoot is sanadabi. And sanadabi means how are your connections? And isn't that beautiful? I mean, it's like honoring that. And he also said, you know, Michael, I can go almost all, and you'll hear this at the other person that in the Blackfoot physics, I can go almost all day without uttering a noun, you know, that their language is very polysyncretic, that it's polysynthetic, and that it's, it, it's extremely verb-based and, and being able to link syllables that have meaning into expressing tremendously amazing things. And and there's not the subject object split as much and, and less reference to past and future. It's very much a unfolding in the moment. And, and there's no doubt that that these early language systems, you know, which Cecil Alame is one of them is that, that I always, I was like, well, how would that be? And it's kind of like, you know, I've often thought we are more the gerund, the verb Michaeling and Philipping along right that that and which comes back to the standing wave and that it would be kind of you know michaeling listening philipping hearing feeling in my hearting curious unfolding what is presenting unfolding in philipping nowing <laughs> you know so this that when you say i love that you you really are trying to find another language and i really know we actually we need new language that even the subject object metaphysics is fundamentally flawed that that there are subjects and objects and and that there is this intertwining of being that is in a present dynamic unfolding of mutual interdependent fields co-arising that buddhist understanding of co-arising and, and deep interdependence like you mentioned and yet tremendous originality like you said you know for me i, I love that nature only makes originals. You can have billions of these snowflakes and not one of them will be the same. And I don't know if you know this, but I love that each of us, there's 50 to 100 mutations in every single human being. And that's, you know, is that natural selection or is there some kind of playful, like the, 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 the Hindu idea of Leela or Lila, you know, the divine play, but that, you know, we are not carbon copies and this, and again, not only the, the mechanistic model, which was wrong in Western metaphysics, but also the computer model, which is, which is destructive, that, that this sense of deep originality and deep interconnectivity 
is something I, I really love that you give voice to. And, and it's a beautiful, I even think, wouldn't it be wonderful if one day we're not known as homo sapiens, but holo sapiens, you know, if you, the, 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 the being seeking wholeness or remembering and bringing to consciousness the wholeness, because I think what's powerful and, and I, I'd love to ask you this question because it's really been burning in me because this question of, you know, we're in such agreement on so many of these levels with this question of, since we are nature and we are some interesting experiment on the part of nature and the universe, that how did we move into building these cultures of whole blindedness? And in, and I don't know if you're familiar with the, the work of the deep ecologist Joanna Macy or um, Father Thomas Berry with this idea that there's we're in this period of a great turning that that we have we have descended into this tyrant egoic uh, separation from nature somehow like the big lie of the last 2,500 years or more that somehow we are separate and above and different from nature that that for them is kind of like you know we're coming back we have to we have this great work to do this great turning which I feel your work is incredible important articulate some of the most you know articulate thoughtful work in this vein that I was so dis excited to discover and give it, has given me words and language to add to, to my own chorus. But if there's a sense in number one, what would have been, if there's meaning, and of course we, you know, it's all, we're all up to find, you know, I guess we're kind of finding our way in the dark of understanding a, a new, healthier story. But if you have any thoughts about how this kind of separation and, uh, disconnect happened into moving into whole blindness and and if there is a way back in and how you feel if optimism pessimism around our ability to make this this turn back into our natural holo sapiens yeah i mean i i i really see it as a dance within us between male and female. Mm. In the late Paleolithic, early Neolithic, um, our culture was gathered around the mother. We were gathered around the goddess. We were um, devoted to the earth. And then we discovered agriculture. Now, when you take a seed and you push it into the ground for the first time, everything changes. So suddenly, this, this ground, which until this point had just been the breast of Mother Earth, you now own it. It's yours. And that little shoot growing up beside your seed, it's now a weed. And there's, ne there's never been a weed in right. the world. There was just this, this profusion of, of Mother Nature in all her forms and each one necessary. Now there's a weed and it has to be killed. And the, the little animal coming along, it's now vermin because it might eat your plant. So it has to be killed. And the tree that's putting your plant into shade has to be cut down because your, your plant needs more light. And, and suddenly there's this 
this division like in Eden, suddenly a knowledge of good and bad, good and evil, and, and, and the world swivels on its axis. And we pin our hopes instead of, instead of understanding how we can attune to the world's harmony and come into harmony with it, we now begin to, to pin our hopes on controlling nature. So, you know, the original leisure society, anthropologists will tell you, was the late Paleolithic. People spent 15 hours, you know, maybe 20 a week looking after their needs. Yeah. And the rest was leisure time. Well, leisure time to us is a, is a really um, corrupted idea because we watch TV or we read a book or we whatever, but there's just the fire and stories and this wide living world around you with which you can come into harmony. You can feel it and feel its pulse. And in taking control of the world, we began to rely more and more on, on the abstracting, systemizing intelligence of the head and less and less on the attuning relational intelligence in the pelvic bowl. And you can see, you know, in language, how our center of thinking began to migrate in the body. So in the early Neolithic art, it's clear that um, the, the, the belly was, was um, prominent and, and there are navel stones on, on grave sites, you know, where, where we have headstones <laughs> because the head is, is what's important. They had navel stones. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you get to Homer, 800 BC or so, and he's using old language, but there's this recurring word freem in Homer. And it's amazing to me that people don't inquire more deeply about freem because it has two meanings. One is mind and the other is diaphragm. Mm. And that it's not that they got anatomy wrong. They experienced the center of their thinking at the diaphragm. And I find it interesting that in that period of Greek history, as they are at the, the tipping point between these two poles of our consciousness, which I experience as the female and the male, you saw the flourishing of art and philosophy and mathematics and theater. And, it, you know, it, it was this union still where female and male, but it, it didn't, it didn't last. And by Plato's day, we'd made it up into the head and it is a necessary stage in our evolution to, to develop our ability to reason, um, to write, to think it's, but what's happened is the male element in coming into its strength turned its back on the female, left the female behind, demeaned the female. So all through our culture, you see the female um, is, is secondary, 
is weaker, is not as intelligent. Um, you know, a, a normal human being in our culture is a white male. I mean, how insane. You know, but, but that's, that, that's how we live in the body. Yes. We have given our allegiance to the male aspect of our intelligence, and it dominates the body as we dominate nature and the world around us. And it seeks to control the body or fix the body as we seek to control the world and fix relationships. And, and basically, we live in a relentlessly top-down manner with ourselves and the world around us. And so, you know, moving on from there, I think that in the history of human consciousness, our thinking has been very localized in the belly, at the diaphragm or the heart, in the head. I believe where we're moving is into an experience of our thinking as an axial consciousness. There is this axis of exchange. And through the body, there are these gifts being exchanged between the poles of our intelligence. And, and it's, not a, it's not a one or the other. It's a both and. Beautiful, beautiful, Philip. I, I know we just have a, a few more minutes, but thank you for all that. And I, I agree. It's so much of, you know, the, this, this loss of the, the feminine pole um, in, in the world. And <clears throat> so much of, for me, that's has so much to do with feeling, right? And, and, <clears throat> and these interior receptive kind of the, in, in, the, the sense of, even though it's flowing with the world, but it's that feeling oriented. But I'd love to come to, to me, this, this place of the pelvic bowl and the pelvic floor in particular. And it was so interesting because here I was loving the whole book and, and I just, you know, I, I'm, I'm a body, I'm, I teach these, you know, creative movement classes and, and have been a, a student of many different forms of what I call soul dancing and, you know, some guide ecstatic dances and, and, and the movement and connection to the body is so important to me. And, and in particular, because, you know, first helping people do diaphragmatic breathing, but I, and I had just been exploring, I think I sent this to you in the email, I'd just been exploring how I, I didn't realize, you know, men could do Kegels, you know, and, and part of like this, this idea of realizing that we have three diaphragms and this lower diaphragm that, that includes the pelvic floor. And when you're breathing in, if you're really breathing in right, that actually the pelvic floor should actually expand instead of go in. And, and most people in our culture, that's reversed by the time they get to adulthood. And I had actually been practicing all of this. And then I'm hearing you talk about the, the same thing. And it's really shifted my, my breathwork practice and, and just in, in bringing my awareness to the, not just the pelvic bowl. I mean, I would I'd teach yoga nidra and I do a lot of, you know, body sensing work and, and think of myself as a soma knot, you know, exploring mm -hmm. the body in these ways. But this sense of I was so moved. I've never heard anyone talk about the pelvic floor the way you did. And, and very bluntly as we, we can't, we can't afford even to stay at the diaphragm and the belly anymore we, because we are so disconnected and we actually need to drop that, you know, as like in your elevator uh, work and others. So anything you would like to share about the pelvic floor and maybe sharing, if there is a little exercise you could leave us with, I, you know, I'd be open to anything you're, you're open to sharing about that. I found that 
bringing that to such a practical, practical, visceral place in the end was, was just beautiful and, and was just so dovetailing with my own experience. Yeah. Again, for me, the essence of breathing is to move away from control into release. So I don't think there is a right way to breathe. But there's a principle that guides my work, which is that the whole of the body can be available to the breath. But the breath is a response to the world around you. Why should, why should there be a right way to breathe? Every response is a new one. So, so with the pelvic floor, we're so used to... Um, I, find, I feel the chest as a potentially willful place. That, 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 that there's an energy in there that... Um, can translate into a diaphragmatic breathing that is a doing rather than a being. So the pelvic floor, as it supports the outbreath and slightly rises into the body, it can just let go without any destination in mind and release to the in-breath. And as it does, there is an invitation to the body to release with it. And the, and the pelvic floor drops down to support the in-breath and then lets go to the out-breath. And I find it interesting that we have a word for releasing the body to the out-breath, which is our word sigh. You know, that quality of just letting go and letting the breath. But we have no word for releasing the body to the in-breath. Here's English with maybe more words than any other language around. And we, we don't have a word for that. And again, it violates the boundary, right? You don't want to release to the world coming into you, for goodness sakes. You want to monitor that, engage it, and make sure it's safe. And so we don't release the body to the in-breath. And we rarely release the body to the out-breath. And the pelvic floor... You know, the intelligence in the pelvic bowl is an inclusive intelligence. It, it comes into felt relationship. It attunes to the whole. The intelligence in the head tends to operate by excluding. You know, strawberry is excluded from the category of vegetables. We, we analyze and systematize and, and take things apart um, by excluding. So when you come back to the pelvic floor, and allow the pelvic floor to initiate the in-breath, it includes the whole of the body in that release. And of course, the diaphragm moves with it, everything. The, the, the cranium moves with it, the legs move with it. And that quality, there's a quality to the pelvic floor. It, it feels like the ground of my being. When I come back to myself, when I land on the pelvic floor, I am truly at rest in my wholeness. And, and what you said, you know, that, that, that our center is, you know, more commonly felt just below the belly button. And I understand that and I feel that, but I think we've gone so abstract we've gone so high our whole value system in our culture tells us that up is good and down is bad um 
you know, you're looking up today and we know what that means and, and, and there's no ambiguity. In another culture, it could mean you're looking a little ungrounded and right, right. flighty, are you all right? right. And down is bad. You, you know, you certainly don't want to have a down day. And so, and so our energy is pulled away from the earth, away from the pelvic floor, up into the chest, into something we can, we can take control of and, and bring out of dangerous relationships. You know, dangerous relationship is just a relationship that will change us, and any relationship will. And so you impoverish your life of relationships in order to assert that sense of safety. And, and safety, I mean, it's, you know, there's this illusory quality to it that we lose sight of that I've noticed for myself on these uh, decades that I've spent on the earth, that if you're alive, you're not safe. You're just not, that's not the nature of life. You're going to get sick, you're going to get injured, you're going to die, you're going to feel grief. You, living is not safe. And so to what, what happens in our culture is there's this little corollary that happens. Well, if, if, if life isn't safe if living isn't safe maybe if i'm less alive i'll be more safe and so we we dull our lives we contract them and and in doing that we disconnect from our being from the pelvic floor from the from the life that undergirds our very sense of self and we live in the head mm -hmm. Beautiful, Philip. Just, just beautiful, <clears throat> and and so timely and so important. Could you guide us in a little um, way of connecting with the body world in in our last few minutes? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I'd I'd invite you to just feel the body's energy wherever it is, however it is without judgment, without any idea of the right way it should be. You're just honoring it by feeling it. You may feel a little fuzzball of anxiety and locate it as specifically as you can for yourself. Be with its presence and honor it. And there may be a little fluttering of the body of expectation, what next, how next, where next, and just if you discover that, if you feel that thrumming in your cells, that jitteriness, just feel it and honor it because it is part of you at this moment. And you may feel a, an energy in the legs, that connection that, that brings us into attunement with the earth. And just feel the energy of the legs as they are. There may be um, a little tension there. There may be a little whatever. And just honor it and feel it and bring your awareness to the energy of your thinking. So not the thoughts themselves, but the energy that drives the thoughts and feel that energy, feel its source, located as specifically as you can and honor it. It's a little like peeking behind the curtain to discover the Wizard of Oz. And feel the energy that lives through your body the way you might Open your eyes on a star field at night. And feel that 
realm. And then as gently as you can, give that energy permission to begin to melt. And you feel it warming and melting inside your head, inside the body, inside the legs. And as it melts, it begins to descend through your being. And you feel it trickling down the way water trickles down through pebbles. And it drops down through the body, down through the legs. And you feel the first little trickle arrive on the soles of your feet. And it pools inside your feet. And as the liquid energy descends, those pools grow. And they begin to rise inside your legs like a tide. And still you're noticing anywhere in the body, the energy may be a little stuck, a little held, a little caught. And you give it the warmth of your love. And you feel it melt under that influence. And as it melts, it liquefies and trickles down inside you. And in response, that fluid energy rises inside the legs, up eventually to the pelvic floor. And still you're noticing anywhere the energy is held or stuck, giving it your gentlest permission to melt, feeling it liquefy, and you feel it trickling down inside the body the way water trickles down through stones. And it joins that rising tide and that fluid energy rises eventually to the top of the pelvic bowl. And just for a moment, experience the spaciousness above the pelvic bowl. And there is so much room within you. There's room for all the world to be felt and more. then bring your awareness to that fluid energy from the top of the pelvic bowl down to the soles of your feet and discover for yourself how to bring that energy completely to rest. What, what is the risk of allowing that energy to come completely to rest. And you begin to feel the weight of it at rest on the soles of your feet. And it rests more deeply. And you feel that energy join the earth. And it rests more deeply still. And you feel it perfectly at rest in the present. And you feel it held by the present. And at rest in the present, you are at rest in your wholeness. And with that spaciousness above, you're like that node in the standing wave, there is room for all the world's energy to pass through you. And as it does, you feel it and resonate to it and understand it in a way that lies well beyond the grasp of language. And feel 
the complementary opposites within you of that deeply settled groundedness and that wide open spaciousness and understand how each supports the other and understand that it's a state you can come back to at any time. And that brings this practice to a close and hopefully it will linger in the body for some time to come. Speaking of that sigh, mm. uh, I always judge the power of a meditation by how speechless and deep the silence is afterwards. So I just am so grateful for this time, Philip. It's just been such an honor and a pleasure. And and I, I did want to say I what I love also this idea of the in breath being a receptive that allow all the cells to release on the in breath. And, and that's something I've been working with. And I, I really feel it's such a very unique thing you bring to your practice. So I want to thank you again. I want to remind everyone again, check out this amazing book, Radical Wholeness, The Embodied Present and the Ordinary Grace of Being by Philip Shepard. And Philip, how can people, if they want to follow up with you, explore your work more, um, tell them a little bit about how they can find you. Yeah, thanks, Michael. I, I... I'd love people to check out my website, which is philipshepherd.com. Um, Philip with one L, Shepherd, spelled the way the guy who looks after sheep is spelled S H E P H E R D. Um, it's got all kinds of stuff on uh, upcoming workshops and trainings that hopefully we'll be able to get back to before too long. Um, and, and lots of mini essays and interviews and things that that they could look into. There's another website, which is tep.life, T-E-P-P.life. And that has most of my online courses on it, um, which is, you know, just a way, a way of supporting embodiment in a culture that is rampantly disembodied. And it's so hard to go it alone, you know, so it's, it's a way of supporting that journey um, 
And both of my books, I, I wrote a book, New Self, New World, as well. Um, both of my books are available as audiobooks, and I, I'm the narrator for both of them. I had to fight tooth and nail for that, um, but they finally came around. So that's, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's a good start. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Well, Philip, I want to thank you again, both for your time today, but in particular, your, your journey, your authentic journey of just spending a life being as present as you can be and authentically being present to the world and yourself and others and, and sharing that. I, it's been, you know, a long time since I've read a book that just, you know, had, just taught all of these deep, I, I call them truth bumps, not chill bumps, but truth bumps. And I just really am so glad that uh, we're sharing some time on the planet together and, and that you've shared such depth and such authenticity and such wisdom. You know, I, I, so the world is really missing and doesn't even acknowledge or understand often what wisdom is. And, and to me, it is this knowledge tempered by felt experience and this felt sense of being here. And, and may we see the return of the feminine pole and the body and the world, body world as one. So again, Philip Shepard, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, God bless you. I, I wish you the very best on your continued work and journey. And I, I hope to get a chance to, to meet in person one day. I would love that, Michael. I look forward to it. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much for being here. You've been listening to Musitations, sound healing and sound wisdom for a world in need where we explore all things musical, meditative, and creative for healing, transformation, and awakening the soul. I've been your guide and host, Michael Brandt DiMaria. Feel free to check out my music on Pandora, Amazon Music, Spotify, XM Cirrus Radio, or Soundscapes Cable. You can also check out my website at michaeldemaria.com or online programs at alldaypeace.com, alldaypeace.com. Listen to your heart, follow your soul, and we'll see you on the next episode of Musitations. <laughs>